Our Father, we come this morning having read these words of Jesus. Lord, we're humbled by them to know that you have preserved these words of Christ for us to read and to study. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to the glory that is here. Help us to see these things afresh and anew. We pray and ask it in Christ's name for his sake. Amen. So I want to begin with a question. What do we learn about the gospel from Jesus' prayer? And I'm not speaking specifically about the verses that we're going to look at this morning, but in general, the whole thing from verse 1 down through the end of it in verse 26. What do we learn about the gospel? What do we learn about the power of the gospel? What do we learn about the God of this gospel? It's interesting, as we read this, by the things that Jesus says, much of what contemporary evangelical Christians think about the gospel is either directly contradicted by the words of Christ Much of it is. What I'm referring to is the way in which we view the Father's activity in the gospel of his Son. We cannot read this prayer of Jesus and not see the sovereignty of God. Several times over, Jesus refers to those that would believe in him in this way. They were yours. You gave them to me. They were yours, now they are mine. All mine are yours. All of yours are mine. And as Jesus prays, very soon he would be going to accomplish our redemption on the cross. He teaches us central truths about the gospel. The gospel according to Jesus in this prayer is intrinsically God-centered. It's Christ-centered. We need not apologize, obviously, for the words of Christ as he makes these things known. Rather, we should glory in them. One of his great concerns in this prayer is that his Father be known. That they may know you. And that was his estimation of what eternal life is back in verse 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in the remaining part of this prayer, Jesus unfolds certain aspects or characteristics of his Father and ours. And one of the main things that we gather from this is that Jesus understood perfectly, obviously, as being the Son of God. God in the flesh, that salvation is of the Lord. From beginning to end, salvation is of the Lord. Jesus prays to his Father, addressing him as the sovereign ruler of both heaven and earth, but yet as one who is full of mercy. I like this phrase. We could say that God is mercifully sovereign. Sovereign. 
mercifully sovereign. His sovereignty is bathed in his mercy. When we begin to view him like that, the way the scriptures reveal him to us, then we begin to see him over and over as, yes, the one who is ruling and reigning from heaven, but also the one who delights in mercy and unwilling that any should perish. Long-suffering. Why have the ages continued to roll on? Because God is long-suffering. He's patient. He wants people to come to Christ. That's the heart of this prayer. And so if you turn your attention back to this ninth verse, I want to ask another question. And the question is, for whom does Jesus pray? Now, the obvious answer, I've already said, he's praying for his eleven. That's right for us to view it that way. There are things that particularly apply to them. But the eleven also are here, in some respects, representatives of us all. They held a unique and specific place in history as to be the ones to take this message, but yet we have the same responsibility, not on the same level, not to the same degree. We are not apostles sent as they are, but yet we are apostles nonetheless, sent ones of Jesus Christ to make his message of the gospel known. But I don't want us to miss something here in verses 9, 10, and 11. Notice that those that have been given to the Son by the Father, those given to the Son by the Father, are now the beneficiaries of his high priestly intercession for them. You and I have a unique privilege of being the ones that Christ Jesus our Lord is interceding for before his Father. He is forever our high priest. And I think it bears out in this in his prayer here that he is only forever the high priest of those that the Father has given to him. We call this part of the aspects of the peculiar or particular grace given to us by God in Christ. And it's distinguished from what we call common grace. You realize that every person you see, every person you meet, every person you will have a conversation with is under living under the common grace of God. Whether or not they realize it doesn't negate the truth of it. That each morning they have breath, that they have life. That's the common grace of God given to them. The scriptures say he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends his reign on the just and the unjust. But stop short there. Christ Jesus, the Lord, prays only for those the father has given to him as high priest. Now, you might say, wait a minute. Fast forward just a little bit in John. And from the cross, we hear Jesus pray for unbelievers. That's true. He does the only recorded prayer that I know of in the scriptures where Jesus is praying for unbelievers is what he says from the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And there I think that is an example for us to follow 
in praying for those who spitefully use and persecute us, to pray for our enemies. But more specific and far more pointedly, Jesus is praying for those the Father has given him. That's me and you. How encouraged do you think Peter was after Jesus had revealed to him, Peter, you're going to deny me three times, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail and that you would, in essence, be restored after your betrayal. Whether or not Peter fully realized it then, certainly later in his life, he did fully realize the significance of Jesus saying to him, Peter, I prayed for you. Same for us. I'm not so sure that we fully realize the significance of the high priestly intercession of Christ. But someday we full well will realize it. And we will have great Gratitude, humble gratitude to give to him for praying for us and those who would believe in his name just prior to his greatest suffering. Notice what he says in verse, the end of verse 9. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then he says in verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Some see in this, and I think rightly so, the deity of Christ. It's all throughout the scriptures, but there are certain places where it is very graphic, very detailed, so that we cannot miss That Jesus Christ, the God-man, is himself indeed fully and really God. There is a sense in which all of us could say the first half of verse 10. All mine are yours. Everything that I have, Lord, is yours. And we would say that that is a proper understanding of what stewardship is, right? But none of us can say the second part of verse 10. All yours are mine. Jesus is here in his prayer revealing that he is indeed God in the flesh. Everything that the Father has has been given to the Son. This group of people that the Father has from eternity past decreed has been given to the Son. Jesus here is claiming them for his own. All of these are mine. All of these that you have given me are mine and yours are mine. And notice what he says. I am glorified in them. If we shrink it back down to these 11 men. If we want to keep it that centrally located. And I think we can. Notice that Jesus is saying in them what they have done. What he has done through them and will do through through them. Brings glory to himself. The faith that they have put, the trust that they have put into their Savior when all of the world around them really is calling not only them but their Savior a liar. 
They're not all that different, these 11 men, than you and I today. Here we are as those who have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and are striving to some degree or another to be obedient to him in all of these different ways by ministering to the needs around us, by preaching the gospel. Notice that Jesus says, it is in this and these that I am glorified. It's one of the reasons, the primary reason that we keep ourselves unspotted from the world. One of the primary reasons that we come out from among them and are separate. Not so that we can seem to be arrogant and proud, but so that Christ is glorified and honored in and through our lives. I am glorified in them. And along these same lines where Christ is revealing himself to be one with the Father, to be the second person of the Godhead, John also writing later in the book of 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 3 gives this as one of the central tests of real and true Christianity. He writes this, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard was coming. And is now already in the world. Jesus making this known here in this prayer. We might ask the question as we read down through these verses and as we really study this prayer from verse 1 down to this point. It's a question that probably some of you have on your mind, though you may not word it the way that I'm about to word it. It's a question that needs to be answered. It's a question that the Bible answers in various ways. The question is this. How does that which is the peculiar possession of the Father become the possession of the Son also? You may word that differently. But how how does what is the Father's become the Son's? Let me see if I can answer that question. The Scriptures tell us that Through an eternal decree before the foundation of the world. That God chose a people and gave them to his son as a people. The son as the God man come in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us in time redeems them. By going to the cross. By shedding his own blood at Calvary. The Spirit of God then also in time makes application of the work of redemption through the Word of God and the preaching of Christ's gospel. And then those who hear the message are drawn to Christ. The Scripture says with cords of love. They are made willing to come to him. And then in time, just as we read on the pages of scripture, there are those who through faith and turning from their sin come to Christ and become part of that number 
that the Father has given the Son. Now, granted, we could talk for, for days and weeks upon the particulars of all of what I've just said, but that's how, biblically, that's the answer to the question, how does this possession of the Father become the Son's? The Son had great work to do. We have work to do in believing in Him. I, I even say all of this because so much of the time you will hear contrary truth which says something like, and if you've ever heard anyone that is opposed to evangelism based upon the truths that I have just said, that's why I say this. There is that group of people who think, well, if God has a people and he has given them to the Son, then I need not do anything in the realm of evangelism. That's an unbiblical perversion of a truth. Nowhere in Scripture will you find it. How then do you deal with the Great Commission? How then do you deal with Christ's expectation of making sure that every creature under heaven hears the message of the gospel? How do Peter's words have any meaning for us? Words that I just let us all praying earlier. How does his words have any meanings that we should be quick and ready to give a well-reasoned defense for the hope that is within us? If this is a miraculous exchange and there is no responsibility on man's part at all, why even preach the gospel? And there are some in our day who hold to that very thing. But I think as we read the scriptures, it is the expectation that the people of God will make known the gospel of God. And it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And that all of this happens in time. There is a point in time, though I'll agree we can't always pinpoint it. Regeneration is a miraculous work of God. And Sometimes he makes that expressly known. Sometimes it's what some have referred to as a slow burn. And we come to realize, yes, I am one of the redeemed of God. And we put our faith and trust in him. But nonetheless, let us be a people who preach the good news of Jesus Christ. Unashamedly, unapologetically. Believing wholeheartedly the truths of this chapter and so many others in the scriptures that there was a, a people the Father gifted the Son with. And it is this group of people particularly for whom the Son prays. It is this group of people particularly in and by whom the Son is glorified. And then in the 11th verse, notice how Jesus speaks of Calvary already having been accomplished. We said this earlier, back up in verses 1 through 5. The same language, the same past tense of the verbs are used. Jesus says amazingly in verse 11, now I am no longer in the world. He's looking past and through the event of the cross that is quickly coming and bearing down on him. And he's referring here to his ascension back into glory. To the resumption of the glory with which 
which he had with the Father before the world was. So confident was he that the work would be done. He speaks of it as having already been accomplished when he says, I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And then he prays. I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. One of the greatest comforts we have as being the people of Christ in the world in which we live, one of the greatest comforts we have is the absolute certainty in which Scripture speaks that the Lord is going to keep us. Peter says we are kept by the power of God. That our place in heaven is reserved. Why is that important? Why is that comforting? We could not, cannot keep ourselves. We have a part in this, obviously. And that's expressed by Jude in that short epistle of his. No chapter, just verses in verse 20. Jude says, keep yourselves in the love of God. There are things practically that we do to keep ourselves in the love of God. We read the scriptures which details for us the love of God. We read in the scriptures about the person of Jesus which also details for us the love of God. We pray. We minister to one another. We do all of those one another things the New Testament expects of us. We give ourselves to the things that Christ expects his people to give themselves to. And thus we keep ourselves in the love of God. But do you remember the 24th verse of Jude? It's worded as doxology or praise to God. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. This aspect of God's keeping, of Christ's keeping. Here Jesus is praying to the Father and he is praying, imploring the Father to keep or to guard through his own name those whom you have given me. And the end result or the end goal is that they may be one as we are one. The unity of the people of God. Paul knew this. That's why he would write to the Philippian church. A verse which we should commit to memory and quote to ourselves often. That he, he who begun the good work in us is going to complete it. He who started this work in us is going to see it through. We have neither the strength or the perseverance But both of those and so much more are attributed to him. Notice Jesus also says, while I was with them in the world. There we see the particular aspect and reference of these 11. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me, I have kept. As the great shepherd of the sheep. He kept them. 
And none of them is lost except the son of perdition. I won't say for certain, but we may come back next week and just consider this saying of Jesus about the son of perdition. About Judas and his work, what he did. How it was both prophesied of him that he would do it, and yet how he himself was fully responsible for having done it. Jesus says he was lost so that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I come to you. And this is not Jesus just saying as we often do when we begin our prayers. Lord we come to you. This is Jesus referencing his ascension into heaven. But now I come to you. And these things I speak in the world. That they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. The question begs to be asked here, how can we not have the joy of Christ fulfilled in ourselves when we read of all of these great truths and how we can see that we are included in this number of those of whom he prays for? So much of our joy is based upon our circumstance and not our spiritual reality. The spiritual reality is that we are the children of God. We have a great, sure, and steadfast hope. The very righteousness of Christ has been given to us. Nothing can take that from us. Christ himself, the Father in heaven, is keeping us, guarding us. We cannot lose what we have been given. That's the fuel of the Christian's joy. And I speak for myself here first and foremost before I would speak it of any of you. When we lose sight of that and when we begin to look more horizontal than vertical, joy runs away. Because the circumstances of life very often are difficult. The circumstances of life very often are hard, not at all joyous in and of themselves. We have to see them as being encompassed or under the umbrella, if you prefer, of all of these other greater spiritual truths. And remember, isn't that the pattern that is being, was set by Christ? I referenced this verse, Hebrews 12, couple of weeks ago the cross was not a joyous occasion for Christ but he endured it why? for the joy that was set before him he knew it was a necessary cup to drink to receive the joy of the resumption of the glory that he once shared with his father, unbroken communion and fellowship. Brothers and sisters, that's how we should view our life in the world very often. And we should endure it. We should persevere through it for the joy that is set before us. Unbroken communion 
and fellowship with both the Father and the Son throughout all eternity. When you consider things like that, how can Christ's joy not be fulfilled in you? When you consider the spiritual reality of the things that Jesus is praying for, the keeping of God, the receiving of his word. He goes on and says in verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not. Think it no strange thing when the world hates you or speaks evil of you, thinks you're a fool. Rather be glad. That's what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when you're persecuted, when you are reviled. That the world hates you, know that it hated me first, he says. What great comfort and encouragement we have knowing that Christ is praying for us in this condition. Lord willing, next week we'll finish out down through verse 19, particularly verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. The word sanctify there basically means set them apart, make them different. Prepare them for all the glory that awaits them by your truth. So be praying, looking forward to that, Lord willing, next week. Let's close in prayer. Our Father, we come to you again. We're thankful for the work that Christ has done for us. Lord, I confess that we very often can't fathom all of your your work and your ways but Lord we know this much that if we will be saved we must come to Christ if we will have hope we must be found in him Lord I pray that your mercy and grace would be made known to all in the room and that you would bless them with the knowledge of salvation and truth. Father, we do so because in this Christ is glorified. And that is our hope and desire, to be glorifying to him. We pray and ask these things in his name.